For everyone else, if, uh, if you don't have one, we have in the back of the room a sermon outline sheet that has the scriptures, and then on the back it has a list of questions. Uh, those questions are, are great for uh, reflecting upon the sermon throughout the week, and they also are good for a discussion at the lunch later after the service. All right, well, let, let's take one more moment and, and uh, pray. Father, I just pray that today this uh, word that you have given us would, uh, would mean something to us today, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Father, make me a preacher that is a vessel of your word. Make me clear, uh, make me concise, and make me full of compassion and conviction. And Father, may it be your word, not my own, that comes into our ears today. In Jesus we pray, amen. So it is a very exciting day for us. This is not only a day where we are celebrating baptism, but as a brand new church, we opened on Easter Sunday this year, we are actually having our very first baptism this morning. So this is our inaugural baptism, uh, and so we are very excited to begin what we intend to be the first of many. How many are we going to baptize in this church? Give me a number. 1,000? I want a higher number than that. What number? 14 million. Let's, let's aspire. All right. Somewhere between 1,000 and 14 million, we'll, we'll, we will be at work baptizing. But uh, uh, yes, what an exciting thing to dream. How many people we will be baptizing here at Renew. The Lord has brought this church, and with it, he has brought his grace And so there will be baptisms here. Amen? Amen. So it's an exciting day, and I want to actually take us back to to the very beginning of of the church, like the second, maybe third generation of the church. And I want to introduce you to uh, a a good old saint. His name is Polycarp. Anybody heard the name Polycarp before? Yeah, Polycarp uh, was an excellent fisherman because every time he went out to, to fish for carp, he didn't just catch one. He catched a lot. He catched Polycarp. Yeah, that's the end of the humor for the, for the time being. Anyways, Polycarp uh, was a, one of the earliest uh, Christians in, uh, in, in history after the close of the New Testament. And so this is a, a, a likeness of him, but you can see Polycarp, his, his dates are from, I think it's, it's, it's is it 62? 69 to what year is it? Yeah, 69 to 156. So he's a very early Christian. He's one of the, 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 the very first. In fact, uh, the, the church tradition has that he was actually evangelized and converted by the Apostle John. So he goes back uh, way, all, all the way to the uh, original apostles. Now, now, Polycarp is not just an early believer, but he is also one of the first martyrs of the church. When he was 87 years old, he was martyred for being a Christian. He was put to death. He was told by the Romans, you need to either recant your faith or we are going to burn you at the stake. We are going to burn you if you don't say the words, I don't believe. And when he had the flames at his feet... It was recorded that Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my Savior and my King? 
So Polycarp said those words. He chose Jesus and chose the flames rather than recant. Now, this is one of those amazing stories. This is why we call them saints, right? Because they're, they're, they're loftier, they're more special than us. But, but I want to submit to you that, that Polycarp is more than just a, a great Christian. He is certainly a great Christian. But I also want to submit that he is somebody who, who, who provides us an example. I mean, I look at that story and I'm like, how did Polycarp get a faith? that was so strong, that was so in love with Jesus that he chose the flames. Where does that faith come from? And as I look at at our life, as I look at our world, as I look at the changes that are happening and the changes that seem to be accelerating, I confess that I live with fear. Will I have the kind of faith that Polycarp has, that will stand the tests of persecution, the tests of loss, the tests of death. Because I don't know, but very possibly those days could be ahead. And then I think about my children. I'm like, what if I take 70 years from today? What will that world be like for my children? And how can I have confidence? How can I have hope that they will have a faith that will stand? How can I raise my child up to be a polycarp? Right? I think that that is something that is in every grandfather's heart and every parent's heart and every uh, other person in this room that knows Jesus. Will we stand? Our children need a faith that is strong. So the question that is in front of us today is, can we have hope that our faith and the faith of our kids will survive the days ahead? The main point of what I want to talk about from our passage today, and it is the main point of our passage, is this. God's grace will give us the faith that we need. God's grace will give us the faith that we need. In fact, as we go through this passage from the the book of Acts, we're going to see three ways specifically that God's grace will give us the faith that we need. He he gives us the grace that we need just in, in overview by seeking us, by securing us, and by surrounding us. Now, we will spend most of our time on that third point today because I want to uh, really focus on the purpose of baptism in in this message, which plays an important part. But we are going to discuss all three. Just expect a little more time on point three than the first two. So let us go into this passage and let us take our fragile faith and see God's grace will give us the faith that we need in three ways. First, by seeking us. So the passage that we have in front of us is from the uh, 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 book of Acts, which is the story of what the apostles, the original followers of Jesus, did after Jesus' 
resurrection and ascension. It tells the story of the gospel being taken out into the world from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so we are actually in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. We're in that the gospel is now going out to the ends of the earth. It is now going out to Gentiles. And Paul and Silas, the main characters of of this passage, are in Philippi. And they are actually in prison in Philippi as missionaries of the gospel. Now, Paul and Silas have gotten into this prison because their preaching had made them a, a, a threat to other people in Philippi. There was a, a slave girl who was going around trying to heckle Paul and Silas. And so Paul says uh, the slave girl was, was possessed. So Paul exercised the demon and the slave girl was set free. And all of a sudden, the owners of the slave girl are like, these, these preachers of Jesus have just ruined my slave girl uh, who was making me a lot of money. And so now they're mad and they, they want Paul and Silas to be dealt with. And so they beat them with, uh, with rods and they throw them in prison. And so they are having been freshly beaten, beaten probably within an inch of their life, are now thrown in prison in Philippi and they're put in the very middle of the prison. And so we have this setting of a bunch of prisoners, Paul and Silas and a jailer. And the time that we come into this story is at midnight. It's dark, they're bleeding, they're bruised, they're wounded, they're exhausted, and yet we read how they are spending their time in this prison in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that an amazing report of what these two were doing. They were not there uh, licking their wounds. They were not practicing self-pity. They were not there doubting their faith. They were not there questioning God. They instead were praying and singing hymns, and the prisoners were listening to them, which is to say that Paul and Silas were worshiping and evangelizing at midnight to these prisoners in Philippi. You see, even in prison, Paul and Silas can sing, God has been good to me. This is a picture of what the gospel that they had and the gospel that we preach can do. Even in the worst circumstances of being bruised and beaten and imprisoned, they still had the joy of the gospel so overwhelming that they can sing, God has been good to me even in prison. Don't you wonder what in this world could possibly be that good? I mean, I I haven't owned a single thing. I haven't experienced a single joy in this world that I wouldn't pretty much be down on it by the time I went through one night of prison. And yet the joy of, of Paul and Silas is uncontainable. Why? Why? Well, I submit to you it is because their faith rests on grace, not grit. Right? If you imagine yourself in there, or if you imagine yourself as a polycarp, and you say, the, the, I just don't think I have the grit. I don't have, think I have the toughness to, to stand the way polycarp does, or to stand the way Paul and Silas does. 
Well, I'm, I would tell you, don't look at your grit. Don't look at how strong your internal constitution is. Look at Jesus. Look at the grace of God, which is with you in every moment, every day, and every stage. That's what it means that they were praying and singing. They weren't looking in on themselves and saying, am I tough enough to endure this? No, they were directing their hearts to the grace of God by worshiping and praying. And they were saying, God, give us the grace that we need to sing here and now. And so there is a lesson there. Their their faith rests on grace, not grit. And that is the same thing that I believe Polycarp had. He had a faith that rests on grace, not grit. But, but, But more than just looking at Paul and Silas and admiring their example, why were they there? Why was Paul and Silas in this prison? And for that, we need to, to back up into the, the story of Acts and go uh, up a, a couple paragraphs. And here we read in Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 12, of why they were there. We are told, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. So this is why Paul and Silas are in Philippi. Philippi is the big city in Macedonia. God has called Paul and Silas to Macedonia to preach. And the reason he has called them to preach is because there are people in Macedonia God has determined he is going to save. Now if you read the, the, the rest of the verses till we get here, he's, they've reached Lydia, a, a, a woman who was a, a worshiper of God. And, and they've saved this slave girl. But they've only reached two people so far before they are thrown in jail. And now they are captive around a bunch of prisoners and around a jailer. But here's the thing. These people in the jail are the Macedonians. They are the, the Philippians. And so Paul and Silas recognize that they are in that prison on the same sending mission that brought them into Philippi. They are in that prison to preach. You see, they recognize that their placement here amongst these prisoners and amongst this jailer is part of this call that they are fulfilling to go to Macedonia. What this means is that God's grace was seeking these prisoners and this jailer. The prisoners and the jailer were part of why God said, Paul, preach the gospel in Macedonia. Dwell upon that. This jailer and these prisoners are so cut off from the the good news of Jesus. They live in a building that nobody visits. Nobody goes to jail, right? (laughs) Unless you're, you're in it. 
And yet God's grace sends his greatest apostle to spend the night in the jail because his grace says, I want these people to know Jesus. That is the seeking grace of God. God's grace was seeking those prisoners and this jailer. What we see here is the, is the, the verse of 1 John 4.19 lived out. We are told that we love because he first loved us. You see, the whole reason that every single one of us loves God is because he first loved us. He was the one seeking us. Our faith is only a response to his seeking. We believe because God sought us. And here's what I want us to see in this point. God's will to save you lies beneath your faith in him. All right? God's will to save you is underneath, is the foundation, is the reason of your faith in him. His will is uh, supporting your faith, okay? And so the picture that I want you to have when you understand your faith is the same picture of you holding your child's hand, all right? Both people, your child and you, are holding one another's hand right? But if the child gets a little distracted and his hand gets a little bit loose and he starts to fall, does he fall? No, because that's not the only hand holding your child. Your hand, your stronger hand, your parent's hand is the real strength of that connection, right? Yes, your child is holding your hand, but the reason that they are safe is because your hand is holding his. And that is what faith is doing. God seeks the jailer. That is, the father's hand has already wrapped itself around you before you have come in faith. So your faith is stronger than you can imagine. Because it is actually God's hand wrapped around yours. So we we, uh, see that God gives us the faith that we need first by it seeking us. Second, I want us to see by it securing us. So after Paul and Silas have been in the jail for, for a while, suddenly this great earthquake comes. It shakes everything and it breaks all of the shackles of Paul, Silas, and the prisoners. Which is incredible. Right? The doors break open, the shackles break open. I mean, th- this earthquake is as much a get out of free card as a free jail card as you could possibly dial up. That's exactly what Paul and Silas uh, are given. And, and honestly, it is worth a, a point of reflection. Why don't they run? Why don't they run out of there? God has clearly made the path for them to leave. But we realize that Paul and Silas don't leave. They don't leave because when the jailer thinks they're gone and plans to kill himself, Paul yells out, do not harm yourself. We are all still here. They don't escape. This is amazing. Paul forsook his own freedom 
Because his concern was for the jailer not to lose his life. His concern was more for the jailer to know Jesus than for him to get free. This, again, is the power of God's grace permeating and saturating the heart of one of his followers. And so when when the jailer hears, we are all still here, he crumbles. He just falls apart. And he runs in to Paul and Silas and he says, what must I do to be saved? You see, this jailer lived in an honor-shame system. He lived in a, in a system where if you do something wrong, if you do something embarrassing, if you make a mistake, it is better for you to take your own life than to let that fall upon your family. And so that's why the, the, the jailer who had come out of a system of works, of I, I earn my honor and I pay for my shame, He comes to see a group of people who have chosen him over their freedom. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Because what I am doing is not saving me. It is keeping me close to my sword, right? And the the key exchange is verse 30 and 31 where he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers back, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see what we have here? We have a clash between the view of the jailer of what must I do and the answer of the gospel, which is just believe. Paul's answer wasn't, Obey the Ten Commandments. Paul's answer was, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. You see, the grace of God does not bring us a do this religion. The grace of God brings us a believe this relationship. We believe And by believing, receive all that must be done to be righteous before God. Simply by believing, Paul says, you will be saved. The salvation is certain at the moment of belief. Believe and you will be saved. You see, this is the good news. In the gospel, in the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have our end declared from the beginning. We know by faith in the gospel what will happen to us. We will be part of the resurrection of Jesus. We know that at the moment of belief. There is no doubt in the gospel What will happen next? What will happen ultimately? We already know because the end, our salvation is declared to us at the very beginning. You see, we have already passed from death to life because Jesus has died for us and has raised himself from the dead for us. 
And so if you are confused at all about the gospel, if you are confused at all about what it means to be saved, I want you to hear this sentence. To be saved, you just have to believe the gospel. You do not have to accomplish something. You do not have to do something. You simply have to believe the gospel. And if we believe the gospel right now, then I can tell you that you have exactly what Polycarp had to stand and make his testimony. Because in your faith, in your salvation by faith, there is no doubt about you. There is no doubt because it is God's grace that has accomplished our salvation. So confident is, uh, is the, the, the end of your salvation that Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 8 these words that are meant to assure every one of our doubting hearts, our shaking hearts, our unsure hearts. He says, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, not because of grit. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, by faith alone in the gospel, we are secured in the grace of God. And the grace of God will give us all that we need to stand and to withstand whatever the world will throw at us. Amen? So God's grace will give us the faith we need. We see it in his seeking us. We see it in his securing us. Now I want us to look at the third point, the point that I actually want to spend a little extra time on, the point that God's grace will give us the faith that we need by surrounding us, by surrounding us. Really, the story of God's grace in, in, uh, in this passage only gets richer. We have seen how God's providence has chosen this jailer and put Paul in a prison to reach the jailer. But as we look at the rest of the passage, we see that God actually is not just seeking the jailer, he is also seeking the jailer's family. He is seeking the kids, and he is seeking the wife, and he is seeking the whole household of this jailer. God's grace doesn't stop at the jailer and say, check. He says, now that I have the jailer, I want the whole family. And so this is God's surrounding grace. 
God's grace is not just about the jailer, but his family too. God uh, surrounds his whole family with his grace. And how does God surround his whole family with his grace? Look at verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. You see, baptism is what God gives this family to communicate that this family is surrounded by God's grace. Baptism brings this family into God's family. That's essentially what it does. And by doing that, it brings this family into the grace of God that surrounds it through the family of God. Now, before we go much further, as we get into baptism, and specifically as we get into the the question of baptizing infants, we do have to recognize that there are differing viewpoints on on baptism. It's, It's sad that there is a division in the church about Uh, baptizing and who should be baptized. Um, And I am not here trying to change someone's mind. Uh, At best, for those who have made up their mind, I am simply hoping to give you the reason why uh, people maybe do it differently than you have seen in the past if you grew up in more of a Baptistic background versus a a Presbyterian background. Uh, And I want to share that that I have wrestled with this uh, on my own spiritual journey, I have three kids, and while I had my three kids, I was getting my uh, seminary education at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and every day at Baptist Seminary, uh, I was asked the question with great impunity, uh, why do you baptize babies? So I had to learn why babies are baptized, and uh, whether I thought that that was uh, a good position, a right position, a biblical position. And ultimately, I came to the belief that uh, I do think it is biblical, and I, and I think it is the preferred position. But I'm not going to uh, say that in any sense to make anyone who believes otherwise uh, feel um, you know, judged or anything like that. I am simply presenting the positive case for why I have come to, to view what I have viewed. Um, we are part of the denomination, uh, the EPC, which stands for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And the motto of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church is that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And definitely the baptism conversation fits into the non-essential and therefore the the area of liberty. So I want you all to know, whether you, you have more of a Baptistic view or more of a Presbyterian view, that you are welcome in this church. But I want you to understand why we baptize babies when you're, when you're here, because it's going to happen, because I hear lots of babies, uh, and, I, and I want you to know what, what, to, what it means. So there are three questions about baptism that I want to go through and, and answer, and at the end of that, I think we'll see why, why Renew is a church that baptizes infants. The three questions I want us to look at is, why does, what does baptism symbolize? Second, what does baptism do? And third, Who is baptism for? Those are the three questions that I want us to look at. So, what does baptism symbolize? Our first question. Baptism symbolizes the work of Christ to save us. 
Baptism is a symbol of the, of the gospel of Jesus. And, and, and we, we see that if you go to the gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus said to his disciples, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which, with which I am baptized? So Jesus here is talking about his cup of judgment that he's going to have to drink at the cross. And he is referring to his passion as as his baptism. So the baptism that that we are are having in the church is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Baptism shows that that Jesus went under the waters, which are uh, in, in the scriptures a symbol for judgment. So the waters represent judgment. And we see in baptism that the waters of judgment have fallen upon Christ And then coming out of the waters, we see the the symbol of the resurrection. So baptism is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He has gone under the judgment, and he has come out in resurrection. So baptism is, is just like the Lord's Supper. It is a picture of Christ. It is a picture of what Christ has done. The elements of the Lord's table are a picture of his body and his blood which were given for us. Baptism is a picture of him going under judgment and coming out in resurrection. Okay? Why why is that an important thing to, to grasp? Because a lot of times it is popular to say that baptism is a symbol of my faith in Jesus. That is something that is said a lot, and there's nothing that I want to say is wrong about the sentiment, but I think it is, in a sense, a little off the mark. Baptism is meant to picture the promise that we put our faith in, not the faith itself. It is the picture of the promise, not a picture of the faith. Does that make sense? And so, because of that... Uh, baptism is a picture of God's work on our behalf. It's a picture of God's covenant of grace. I I like how uh, the theologian Sinclair Ferguson describes it. He says, baptism is not primarily a sign and seal of faith, but to faith. What is symbolized in baptism is not faith, but the Christ in whom faith rests. Okay? So when we witness a baptism... We are all being called to put our faith in what the baptism represents, which is Jesus. So we are called to believe in the one who took the baptism of judgment for us. So that's, that's question one. What does baptism symbolize? It is a symbol of Christ. It is a, it is a visible word of the gospel. It symbolizes Christ. The second question that we have is what does baptism do? The first thing I want you to know is that baptism does not save. Nobody in uh, Presbyterian life believes that baptism saves. We do not baptize babies thinking that we have saved this baby. That is, uh, that is a view that, that uh, the Catholics hold, but that is not a view that, that is held uh, in any Protestant church. Look back again at verse 31 of our passage. What must I do to be saved? Paul's answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. No word there at all about baptism. The jailer was saved by believing. He was not saved by being baptized. And so we do not believe that baptism is, a, is an act that saves the person. 
What baptism does is it declares that person as a part of God's visible family. It is a way of saying the covenant of God's grace has come to this person and this person is now part of the visible people of God, the church, and therefore is in the the family of God, the visible family of God. All right? So what happens with baptism? If you go back to the uh, Gospel of Matthew, the very end, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a naming ceremony, right? It's like, it's like a wedding ceremony. You take the name of your husband. When you, when you sign the birth certificate, the family gives the name of the family to the baby. In baptism, God puts his name, his triune name, on us as a way of saying, you're part of my family now, right? That's what, what is happening in baptism. Baptism is a symbol of saying, I belong to God and his family. And in fact, it's your first family, right? I belong to God and his family is what baptism does. It is a public declaration that the person now belongs to the family of God. And so the jailer, when he is baptized, is saying, I am now part of the family of God. So, question three, who is baptism for? Who is baptism for? Well, the, the, the answer to that is uncontroversial. The baptism is for all believers in God's promise of salvation in Christ. The, the, the jailer puts his faith in the gospel and he is baptized, right? And so uh, he belongs to the family of God because he has believed and then has received the, the sign of Christ through baptism. So all believers in God's promise of salvation are, are who receive baptism. But here's, here's where it gets a little nuanced. Is that, is that all? Is that all of who God has in his family? And so the question that we have to wrestle with, the question that I had to wrestle with through seminary, is what about children of believers? What about children of believers? Do they have any place in, in God's family? So if you, if you look just at Mark chapter 10, verse 14, uh, you see Jesus say something about children. He says, don't hinder the children from com- coming to me, for such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus says in his kingdom are children. And the word for children there actually is a word that includes infants. So Jesus is saying that in his kingdom are children. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That in heaven there are children. Children are part of the kingdom of God. They're part of the kingdom of God even before they are able to say, I believe in Jesus. Infants just can't do that. So here's the tension. If Jesus says such as these are part of the kingdom of God, does our sign of being part of the family of God need to include children? Right? That's the question. And that's the thing that, that we have to wrestle with. And so how do, we, how do we work through that? Well, I think the passage that we have in front of us shows us how the first apostles uh, dealt with that. When we look at verse 33, we see that the uh, jailer uh, took, uh, 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 he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
So what we have in this passage is we have a, a passage where the jailer is the one whose faith has been stressed. But then the whole family is receiving the gift of baptism. Not just the jailer who is, who is believed, but all his family are also being baptized. So, so we have here, who's in the family? We, we don't know. The, the Bible doesn't really care to tell us who's in the family. It simply wants us to know that the whole household was baptized. And the word household is used again and again in the New Testament, that baptisms come to households, which, which suggests that it's not who's in the household that matters. It's that the whole household is baptized. And more than likely, probably, uh, infants and babies and, and very young children would be part of these households. Again, I think uh, Sinclair Ferguson is helpful in, in uh, explaining this. He says, The occurrence of household baptisms in the New Testament is best understood as an expression of the Old Testament covenant principle of the solidarity of the family. The baptism of an entire household echoes the pattern governing circumcision in Genesis 17:11 to 14. So s- baptism is kind of the sequel to circumcision. And when we look at what's happened with circumcision, the whole household, including infants, received circumcision because circumcision was a mark of the family of God in the old covenant. Baptism then replaces that. Okay. Uh, here's, here's something else that, that kind of nudges us towards children. God's covenant promise has always included the children of believers. If you go to Abraham, it says this promise is for you and your offspring. That's why they're all circumcised. Uh, if you go to David, this promises for you and your offspring. And if we come to the Gospel of Acts and listen to Peter's very first sermon after Jesus' resurrection, he says something like, uh, similar. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see, Peter has brought forward the same covenant language that was given to Abraham and Moses and David, that this promise of salvation, the promise of Jesus, is for you and for your children. And so it is seeing those the, the, the inclusion of children in the kingdom of God, the, the promise including the words of children, and the fact that households are baptized, that, that we have, have, have come to the conclusion that infants have been, are participants in baptism. Infants have been baptism on the recognition that they too belong to the family of God. And so when we baptize an infant, what we are saying, and this is ultimately what I cherish so much, baptism is declaring that God is saying to your child, I love a Chessie even more than you do. I am already seeking a Chessie. So much so that I have made sure that a Chezi is born into a home that will surround her with the grace of the gospel and will place her in a church that surrounds her with the grace of the gospel. You see, baptism is a symbol that God's grace is seeking a Chezi. So question three, obviously, who is baptism for? We say all believers in Jesus, but also we believe their children too are included. We baptize infants because God's promise to save 
is for us and our children. And so I want to make this very clear as as we get close to our conclusion. We baptize infants not to say that they are saved. We baptize infants out of trust that God uses their baptism to bring them to faith. And how's he going to do that? He's already begun. Baptism is making them a part of the family of God. And the family of God is the place where God's grace in Jesus is going to surround them and instruct him and raise her, it says he's a girl, raise her up in the knowledge of Jesus so that at some day in the future we will hear from Achezi's own mouth, I believe in Jesus. And that is because the grace of Jesus has been working on her from this day and every day forward. So baptism makes them part of the church. The church is where God's grace surrounds them. Now, this is important not just for infants. This is important for all of us. The family of God, the church, is God's grace that surrounds. It's God's gift to all of us to have a faith that will end like Polycarp. Okay? Polycarp got to the age of 86 living amongst the people of God, surrounded by the grace of God, so that when he had to take that final step and say, I won't recant, he had 86 years, he says, of of knowing his Savior's faithfulness. Where did he experience that? He experienced that in the family of God. And so if you look at the future and you want yourself and your kids to be strong when the days get tough, make sure they are being surrounded by the grace of God today by having your family dedicated to God and by placing them in a church and involving them in a church that is dedicated to God. So the good news is that God's seeking, securing, and surrounding grace is for us today. Will you stand? Will your children stand? Beloved, trust in God's grace given to you in Jesus. It will not fail. Amen?